We are so thankful for New Life Home and the difference that they're making in Guatemala and that ministry. We've been supporting them for 30 years. Every month we support, uh, but the need continues to grow as, uh, as the need expands in that area. And we have an opportunity to be a blessing in a greater way. They need 300 sponsors uh, for these children at $35 a month. And you can make a difference. And the beautiful thing, there are many wonderful ministries like this around the world. But this one, the kids live there. They eat three meals there, provided health care, schooling, protection, love, and support. And we are so blessed. We actually have Kendon uh, and Wendy Wheeler that are in service, that have been leading this ministry for all these decades. Let's thank them for their service for the Lord in Guatemala. And they're a part of our Trinity family, and we so appreciate them. I know we send teams down there to help with building projects, and you might... Uh, Find out when the next one is and, and go down and, and help continue to build and expand what the Lord's doing there. An incredible ministry is taking place. And so uh, stop by outside in Trinity Central, uh, get some more information, share a kind word and encouragement to them. But most importantly, we're believing God for 300 sponsors out of this church to help care for the lives of these children. Uh, well, we're in the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 13, and this is a pivotal chapter in the book of Acts, as we've been talking about. This is when uh, Barnabas and Saul, who now is the apostle Paul, he's referred to as Paul moving forward now in this chapter. They're sent out of the church of Antioch, and, and they're going, and they're going to bring the gospel message to the Gentile world. This is significant because it, you and I wouldn't be seated here as Christians if, what, if this didn't take place 2,000 years ago. But the cool thing is, as they're going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, every time they go to another city, they stop off in one of the synagogues, which is like a local church that we understand in, in a New Testament world, and they would share the gospel there. And so they were doing the Lord's work, fulfilling the Great Commission to go in all the world and preach the gospel. But I love the details that Dr. Luke, who's, who wrote the book of Acts as he was inspired of the Holy Spirit, I love the details that, and how he describes certain moments. That's why it's called the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And so we're learning, and nothing's in the Bible by coincidence, or nothing's in the Bible by accident. It's all there for our instruction and for our training. So we've named this chapter, Old Ways Don't Open Up New Doors. And there's another old saying, it goes like this, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. If you don't like what you're getting, you've got to change what you're doing. And sometimes if an organization or a team isn't going in the, in, the, in the right direction, sometimes it needs a change from the top, at the top of the organization. Well, we're going to look at a story and a verse in the Bible here in Acts 13 where God makes a switch. God makes Paul the new team leader of this ministry team that was sent out of the church of Antioch. So Acts chapter 13, verse 13, where we left off from last week, and from Paphos, Paul and his party. Stop there for a moment. It now says Paul and his party. It used to be Barnabas and Saul, and then it was Barnabas and Paul. But now, at this very moment in church history, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, deemed it important to make Paul the leader of this ministry team. So from this moment forward, it will be referred to as Paul and his party, Paul and his company, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Paul will always be the one that's preferred because he is the preeminent leader of this ministry team. It's now going to focus on Paul. 
So from Paphos, Paul and his party put out to sea and sailed to Perga in Pamphylia. John, this is John Mark, John, however, left them and returned to Jerusalem. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the honor and the privilege that we've had today to gather together to worship you in a vibrant, authentic expression of passionate worship. Thank you for the opportunity that we had to worship you, Lord, through our giving. And now, Lord, we thank you for this act of worship through receiving the ministry of the Word of God. Thank you that your Word will find a home in our hearts. And what will not simply be hearers of the Word, but doers. That, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will instruct us how we are to apply the lesson that we are studying from Acts 13 in our own lives. I pray and ask this in the name that's above every name, the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. I want to welcome those that are watching online. Thank you for joining us. So, something happens here that's significant. Really two important things change from this verse moving forward. And the first is that Paul officially becomes the leader of this ministry team. It used to be Barnabas, but now it's the apostle Paul. You know, sometimes in life, there are times when change is necessary, and maybe when that change happens, maybe someone is preferred instead of yourself. It's not always easy. Uh, if you're working at a job and maybe there's a, a promotion, a position that's opened up that would be a promotion for you and you apply for that job. And maybe somebody else you know within the organization applies for that job. And they give it to that person instead of you. If you don't guard your heart, you could become resentful. You could feel slighted, like they should have picked me, I'm better than them or I'm smarter than them. And maybe you are. But they, they didn't. They selected this other person. You and I have to be able to live with that if someone is preferred instead of ourselves. It might be, those of you single guys out there, maybe you have your eye on a single woman and maybe before you were able to get the courage to ask her out, somebody else came along and swept her off her feet. And you could feel, oh, I thought she was supposed to be for me. Or young ladies, you know, maybe there's a guy that you're hoping will ask you out and, and uh, you know, uh, you've been poking each other on Facebook or whatever they do these days or Snapchatting or whatever and... And, uh, you know, uh, he, he ends up not asking you out, he asks your friend out. And if you don't guard your heart, then, you know, you could become maybe resentful about that, and you can let that come between you and your friendship with your friend and all of that. You know, at some point in time, we have to trust God. We have to truly believe that God's in control of our lives, that our steps are ordered of the Lord, for the Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord, that God knows who we are and where we are and what we need. And if we're not weary, as long as we don't become weary in well-doing, in due season, we will reap if we faint not. We have to believe that promotion does come from the Lord. Sometimes we ask that question, well, where does promotion come from? Well, promotion, does it come from the Lord? The answer is yes. In Psalm 75, verse 6, the psalmist said this, promotion doesn't come neither from the south or from the west or from the east, or from the, west, from the east, west, or the south, but promotion comes from the Lord. The very next verse says, God's the judge. God puts one up and sets one down. It's according to his timing. It's according to his plan. It's according to his will. And so when we know that promotion doesn't come from man, that ultimately promotion comes from God, and we want God's promotion in our life. We don't want man's promotion. It won't last. We want God's promotion. It might take a little bit longer, but it will last a whole lot longer. The Bible says that God opens doors that no one can shut, or he shuts doors that no one can open. You never want to try to force your way through a door that God has shut. You want to wait till God 
opens that door, and when God opens that door, you'll know it, and everyone will know it, and you can step into that door. The second thing that we know from this one verse is that John Mark, John, who's John Mark, he eventually becomes the writer of the Gospel of Mark, he was a nephew of Barnabas, Barnabas was his uncle, and because of this changing of the guard, you know, sometimes you might be at, at, a, at a job and maybe you get a new boss and you loved your old boss, but now they gave you this new boss and now you don't like this new boss. Or you've got a, a new supervisor or you're on a team and now all of a sudden you have a new head coach and you don't like the head coach or, you know, uh, maybe the, the person that you like is no longer leading whatever you're involved in because there's a new leader now. Well, for some reason, John Mark didn't like the fact that Barnabas was no longer going to be the leader. It was now going to be the Apostle Paul. But this, is a, this was a, a doing from the Lord. This was God's work. And sometimes in life, we need to take a step back. We need to zoom out and not be so zoomed in. And we need to realize and, that the important thing is not the part we play, but what we're a part of. Mark should have recognized, John Mark should have recognized what he was a part of. But he for some reason got angry over this and he left to go back to Jerusalem. We know that he left the team prematurely because in Acts chapter 15, when John Mark wants to come back to join Paul's ministry team, Barnabas says we should bring back Mark on the team and in Acts 15, Paul said no. And they had such a strong, contentious disagreement between the two of them that they actually had a falling out. Yes, two great men of God can have a falling out over a contentious, contentious issue because at the end of the day, we're all just humans. And they have a falling out, and it was over John Mark. You see, John Mark left prematurely. And sometimes that happens in life. And sometimes people jet prematurely. Sometimes people defect. John didn't like the changing of the guard, and there's a new sheriff in town. He wasn't happy with Paul being the team leader. And so he left. He went back to Jerusalem. Now let's imagine for a moment that this ministry team consisted of three people. Because we know it consisted of at least three people. Paul, Barnabas, and John who was their assistant. So let's say that you had a team. And if, if, if one third of your team left you hanging, you would be in serious trouble. If you were a, a, an army and one third of the soldiers you know, left... Where would that leave you in the upcoming battle? So John Mark leaving was significant. One less team member. That's like a pastor that's been in a church for many, 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 many years. And then maybe another opportunity comes, comes available. And there's nothing wrong with a season ending and the new season beginning. But let's say that he just ups and leaves from one week to the next. And there's no preparation. There's no conversation. There's no preparing. the con He just... Boom, he's gone. You're like, what happened to Pastor so-and-so? He was here last week, he's gone today, right? Or, let's say you're a part of a team, and before the season's over, uh, before the last game of the season, the head coach gets a, a, another opportunity, and he quits the team. He just leaves the team hanging. Maybe you've worked on an important project for an important client. Maybe you had a team member. Maybe the manager of that team just defects, just ups and leaves prematurely, and then leaves the rest of the team members scrambling, trying to finish the project according to the deadline for this important client. And you're kind of left like, really? You couldn't have planned this a little bit better? That's how abrupt John Mark left, and he goes back to Jerusalem. 
Now, we know that this is uh, unfortunately something that's common, that sometimes people can become unreliable. If you've ever had to work with someone that is unreliable and you need to be able to depend on them, but you can't depend on them, it can be frustrating. Matter of fact, in Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 19, Solomon addressed this. He says, putting confidence in an unreliable man is like chewing with a sore tooth or trying to run on a broken foot. You ever had a sore tooth and you're trying to eat breakfast, lunch, or dinner on a sore tooth? You can't finish your meal. You can't eat with a sore tooth. You have to wait till your sore tooth is better before you can eat, which means that will affect your health. That will affect eating a well-balanced meal three times a day. So what Proverbs is saying here is an unreliable person in a company, in an organization, in a church, in a family will affect the health of that organization. And if you've ever had a broken foot or a sprained ankle and you're trying to walk on a broken foot or a sprained ankle, it's hard to get around. So an unreliable person is like a broken foot, which means that person impedes the progress of that organization or that church or that, or that team. So we need to learn how to be reliable and to be dependable. You see, I believe that God-fearing men and women who love Jesus, we should be the most dependable, the most reliable, the most loyal, the most trustworthy, the hardest working people in West Texas this day and this week should be those who love Christ. Your family should be able to depend on you. Your company should be able to depend on you. Your teammates should be able to depend on you. Your church should be able to depend on you. God should be able to depend on you. And our country should be able to depend on you. So thank God for all of you that have or are serving in our armed forces. You're reliable. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but pray. Don't pray for the harvest. Oh, we're praying for a revival. Jesus said the, har- the revival's there. Pray for the workers. We need men and women who are willing to spiritually roll up their sleeves and serve and help and participate. That's why attending church, God bless you, attending church is good. But we need to go from simply being attenders to being members to being ministers. We all need to find an area where we can serve and take our talents, our skills, and our abilities and our passions and use them to advance and continue to advance the cause of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus said this about those who defect from responsibility in Luke chapter 9 verse 62. It says, but Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, Mark put his hand to a ministry plow out of the church of Antioch. He was an assistant to Paul and Barnabas, and something happened. He didn't like what happened. He didn't like the change that was going on, so he took his hand off the plow because he looked back, and he went back to Jerusalem. Now listen, it wasn't good what John did, but it's an example for the rest of us. And here's the good news in the story. John Mark defected from Paul's ministry team. God can do a work in a person's heart over a period of time. And later on, when Paul was writing his second letter to Timothy, and when he was writing to the church at Colossae, Paul actually talks about John Mark and how valuable he had become again to the ministry of Christ and to Paul's ministry. So some, at some point in time, John Mark learned a valuable lesson 
that he shouldn't have skipped out on Paul and his company, Paul and his ministry team, prematurely. But you know, men, walking away from their responsibilities, unfortunately, is nothing new. Regrettably, it does happen all the time. And the Apostle Paul, in the Word of God, God reserves some of his harshest words for men who diss their responsibilities before God. Look at what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. He said, but if a man makes no provision for those dependent on him, and especially for his own family, well, he has disowned the faith and is behaving worse than an unbeliever. A man that shrieks his responsibility, a man that runs from his responsibility. Listen to me. I want to speak to every young man in service to, uh, today. I hope you have a father that speaks to you this way. I hope you had maybe a grandfather that speaks to you this way. I hope you have maybe a godly uncle in your life that speaks to you this way. But in case you don't, listen to me, young man. The time will come in your life, the season of life will come when, you're, when you'll find that special someone that you want to spend the rest of your life with. And you'll tie the knot. You'll get married. And from that loving, committed marriage relationship, you're going to have children, either by way of birth or by way of adoption. You're going to have children. Your entire life, God is preparing you to be the husband and the father that that family desperately needs. Every home needs a godly leader in that home, a man who accepts his duty under God and his responsibility to provide the emotional needs, the spiritual needs, the financial needs that that family deserves, and every man must rise to the occasion. And so listen to me, young man. You are now in preparation to be that godly man that that woman and those children desperately need down the road. But you know what the sad reality is? And this breaks my heart. 67% of African-American children will go to bed tonight and their father will not be in that home with them. 42% of Hispanic kids will go to bed tonight and their father will not be in that home. 25% of white kids will go to bed tonight and their fathers will not be in that home. And 17% of Asian-American kids will go to bed tonight and their fathers will not be in that home. I want you to know that real men do not father children and bring them into this world and let the mother tend to raising those kids. Real men are responsible for that child's life for the rest of their life. And even if sometimes maybe the relationship doesn't work out between the father and the mother and God help us that it would because every child born deserves to be raised by his or her biological mother and biological father. That's God's best. But I know we live in a broken world. And I, still, I know sometimes that it doesn't work out that way. But it doesn't excuse that woman or that man to always be a part of that child's life until the day you die. It's your duty. It's your God-given responsibility. You see, I'm passionate about this because there's a family member that I love very deeply, a relative in my family whose father, biological father, was never a part of her life. Never. He conceived uh, in an act of passion, this relative, 
And when this child was born, thank God, her mother has taken, took care of her. It was difficult. It was tough back in those days to be a single mom, you know, 60 years ago. But she did it. God bless her for that. But this father was never a part of her life. He went on and married and had children. Nothing wrong with that. But he raised that family and took care of those children and never took and had a second thought of this child that he brought into this world. I'd like one day to grab him by the the neck collar, shake him, pick him up if I can, and say, you're a poor excuse of a man. I want you to know that. Because your number one responsibility is if you can bring a child into this world, it becomes your responsibility to make sure that that child's needs are met. And you don't pan that off to anybody else. Pastor Carl, why don't you tell us how you really feel? Well, that was a therapeutic moment for me, and I just want to say thank you. You guys are great listeners. I got that off my chest. I'm feeling much better today, and this afternoon is going to be a great afternoon for me. <laughs> Listen, I know we all make mistakes and things that we regret. All of us. And if you, and if you haven't made a mistake or have a regret that you regret in your life, it's because you haven't lived long enough. We all do. We all do. It's not what you do. It's what you do with what you did that counts. So you did something. You wish you could take it back. You wish you could undo it. You can't. But now how are you going to live with it? How are you going to work it out? How, how are you going to take responsibility for your part in it? And how are you going to make, with God's grace and God's help, the best from it? Sometimes it's not the best of circumstances, but you deal, you, you know, you play the hand that's been dealt you. And with God's grace and God's favor, you do your very best to make it right. The Bible's filled with people that have made mistakes. But the reason that these men and these women become heroes of the faith, it's not because they never failed, it's because they never quit. And there's a difference in failing and quitting. And when they failed, they owned up to their failure. They repented for their, of their sin, and then God was able to bring restoration. And that's all God expects from you and from me. It's not that we'll never make mistakes. It's that when we make a mistake, we own it. We own it. And then moving forward, we do to the best of our ability and the best of the circumstances that we've now created, uh, to the best of our ability and the circumstances that are available to do our very best, to honor the Lord in spite of that. I've heard this. I've read this. And I know I have some doctor friends in here, and I didn't have a chance to ask them or to verify this. But I, I've read and I've heard that when somebody breaks a bone, at the point of the fracture, when it's reset and restored and healed, that at the point of that break, it actually becomes stronger moving forward than before the break. You know, spiritually speaking, I think that applies to all of our lives. That when we have a broken area in our life, and we go to Dr. Jesus, and he resets that broken area of our life, and he because we repent and his mercies are new every morning and the blood of Jesus washes us and cleanses us and the power of the Holy Spirit restores us and sanctifies us. At the point where we were broken, either because of our own sin or the sin of somebody else against us, how many of you know that from that breaking point in your life moving forward, you can become stronger in that area than you ever would have been had that not happened to you? And now moving forward, God can use you to be a healing force and a blessing in the lives of others. You know, it's a shame that anyone has ever been a, a, a victim of abuse. 
Those of you that have been victims of abuse, because you allow God to heal you and you forgive any animosity or hatred towards, the, towards your abuser, not because they deserve it as much as because you do and God does for his sake. You're able to go forth and now you're able to become an advocate and a champion for others who are victims of abuse. And the world is a better place, not because of abusers, but because of those that have been abused and didn't give up and said, I'm going to fight back and I'm going to help all the others that have been abused. And now they become a healing force in our world. And God bless you for that. For those who have battled addiction, alcohol, drugs, or whatever, and they go to Christ and they get healed and forgiven and restored, and then they become the best supporters, the best supporters of others who are going through a time of great addiction and battling those things in their life. Listen, I've said this before and it's been said before, the stick that the devil used to try to beat you down in life when we turn to the great physician and he restores us and resets us, you can pick up that stick and you can use that stick to beat the devil up for the rest of your life. There's always a silver lining that what others meant for your evil, God can use for his glory and for your good. And that's the lesson we can learn from John Mark. He defects, he leaves, he shrieks his responsibility, unlike Christ. You know, the Bible compares the first Adam, the real Adam in the garden, to what Paul calls the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. The first Adam failed in his responsibility. Thank God the second Adam did not fail in his responsibility. The first Adam, when he was being held responsible for the decision he made in the garden, what did he do? He ran from his responsibility. He was hiding. God had to go looking for him. And when God found him, what did Adam do? Did Adam take responsibility for the mess and for the mistake that he made? No. What did he do? He snitched on his wife. That's what he did. He blamed his wife. And indirectly, he blamed God. What kind of man does that? Aren't you thankful that Jesus, he didn't commit he didn't cause the mess. He never committed a sin. But for all of us that created the mess and for all of us that committed the sin, he took responsibility for you and he took responsibility for me. He didn't create the mess, but he took responsibility for those that did create the mess. And that's what a leader does. Thank God for Jesus taking responsibility. But as the story continues now in verse 14, it says, but Paul and Barnabas, remember it's always going to be this way now. Paul will be mentioned first. But Paul and Barnabas, they traveled inland to Antioch of Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they were so tired, they couldn't go to the synagogue for services. So they stayed home in their hotel, and they FaceTimed live the service. Oh, wait a minute. That, no, that's not what it says. No. Even though they traveled, because it was the Sabbath day, what did they do? They went to the synagogue for the services. Thank God for all of you that came today on the Lord's Day for the services. You can do it on Saturday night at 5. If you miss Saturday night at 5, you can come Sunday morning at 8.30. If you miss the 8.30, you can come at the 10 o'clock. And if the real smart people sleep in, they can come to the 11.45. Amen. But we come to the services. Now, a synagogue in the, in the Old Testament and in the Gospels and here in the book of Acts, like a, a New Testament church. It's where Jewish believers in, in God would come and gather and worship. Gentiles would also be there because, uh, well, Gentiles, many of them proselytized from their heathen pagan ways and became Jews. Now, God wanted everybody, Jew and Gentile, to become a Christian. 
to become a follower of Christ. And so even though Paul and Barnabas and his ministry team were sent out to preach to the Gentiles, I love this. In every city that they went into, if it was the Sabbath, it was their custom to find a local synagogue and to go and worship and to be with the worshipers. In, on this particular time, at this particular service, we'll see when we pick up where we leave off today, Paul preaches his first message and his first recorded sermon is actually found here in Acts chapter 13. But I love the fact that they went to the synagogue for the services. You know, Jesus had this custom. In, in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, it says, it was the custom of Jesus on Sabbath to be in the synagogue. You know, when it comes to Christians, those of us that love Jesus, attending church is not an option. We are required to be a part of a local assembly, and we are required to gather ourselves together. Look what Hebrews 10.25 says. It says, let us not neglect our church meetings. It's real quiet. That would have been a good place for you to say, amen, because you're here anyway, so you don't have to feel guilty, right? So we'll try that again. Uh, let us not neglect our church meetings. All right. As some people, hello, as some people do, but encourage and warn each other, especially now that the day of his coming back again is drawing near. I mean, they needed it 2,000 years ago. How much more now as the coming of Christ is, is nearing? So being in church is a, such a blessing. And, and to participate in worship with other believers, it's scriptural. It's biblical. I know. I've got family members. People I love. They, they call themselves Christians. I believe they are. And they don't go to church. And, uh, you know, some people don't go to church. Oh, I just can't find a church spiritual enough. Now, they're all filled with hypocrites. Well, one less now because you're not there. <laughs> it's, I mean, yeah, church, church is filled with wounded people. I mean, church is filled with recovering sinners. Hello, that's what we all are basically, all right? And they just can't find a spiritual enough church. I'm like, well, why don't you go start your own? Some of them are. Let's see how many go to that church, you know, after it's all said and done. But we, we need to have a, a right spirit and a right heart, and we need to understand the value of doing what Paul did and doing what Jesus did. And here's what happened, verse 15, as they went to this synagogue service, none of them were saved yet. Paul was going to preach about Jesus as Messiah to them. Now after the, I love this, once again, Luke, Dr. Luke includes important details for our own personal blessing. After the usual, the usual readings from the books of Moses and the prophets, those in charge of the service sent them this message. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement to the people, come and give it. So Luke, Dr. Luke has given us a glimpse of, of how these services were conducted. I've had the privilege on two occasions to go to the Holy Land, to go to Jerusalem, Israel. And I've been in a Messianic Jewish congregational service on the Sabbath. And... Here's what I, I know, and they've done this for thousands of years. They have such a respect for the reading of the Holy Scriptures. Uh, it's, it's a ceremony that goes into the opening of the scrolls and the reading of, from the Holy Text. And there's such a, a love and respect and a regard for the Holy Scriptures that it's very moving. And it should be that way. As Christ followers, as Christians, we should love the Word of God and uh, we don't worship the Word of God. We worship the author <laughs> of the Bible. 
Uh, and, because, and because we love God and we love his son and we love the Holy Spirit, we love the Holy Scriptures. And reading of Scripture was paramount in every service. And it should be to this day. I mean, the centerpiece of every worship service, the centerpiece should be teaching and reading from the Holy Scriptures. Uh, it's non-negotiable. And so they're there. And of course, the New Testament wasn't written yet. They only had the Old Testament version of the Holy Scriptures, the Torah, which consisted of the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then they had the writings of the prophets. And so they would open up and they would read from the writing of Moses and they would read from one of the prophets. And this was the custom of Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, verse, uh, in the fourth chapter of Luke, we understand that Jesus went to a synagogue because that was his custom, verse 16. And they had a tradition that prominent people in the congregation would be able to come and read from the text and then share something encouraging. On that particular day in Luke chapter 4, Jesus stands up and he opens up the scroll and he reads from this section of the book of Isaiah. Chapter 61 verse 1. Now the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And in the middle of the sentence, he stops, and he rolls up the scroll, and then he makes this scandalous proclamation. Today, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. And the people... In the synagogue that day were shocked. They were speechless. They were flabbergasted. And one person said, did he just say what I, one of the Pharisees, did he just say what I think he said? And they're like, yes. He's applying that prophecy to himself, which means he's making himself to be the Messiah. And they became so angry, they ripped their clothes and frothed at the mouth and pulled out their hair and they wanted to take Jesus out of the synagogue that day to the edge of town and throw him off a cliff. You can read it for yourself in Luke chapter 4. But the Holy Spirit hid Jesus, and he was able to escape. How many know that church people can be some of the meanest people on the face of the earth? People that know the Bible but don't know the author of the Bible can be the most hateful people. I mean, Jesus was basically kicked out of the synagogue. He was never back in a synagogue again. He actually did all his preaching outside, open fields, in cities, in villages, but never back in a synagogue from that point forward because they rejected him. There's an old story of a man that, that left a church and he was, he was sad and kind of crying outside of the church and, and Jesus showed up. He said, what's wrong? He said, that church just kicked me out. He said, oh, don't worry about it. They kicked me out a long time ago too. You're in good company. <laughs> you know, in Revelation 3, we, we find Jesus, amazingly, we find Jesus standing outside of his church knocking, <laughs> trying to get in. How I many know church should be about Jesus, all about Jesus, and it should be about teaching what Jesus taught. It should be about presenting the word of God, and we should have the most reverential attitude towards the word of God, which means this. That at the end of the day, if what you believe is contrary to what God's word teaches, you change your belief. If what you practice is contrary to what God's word teaches, you change your practice. 
I don't care if you're the Pope. There is a heaven, there is a hell, because God's word says there's a heaven, there's a hell. I don't care if you're the Pope and you want to make some little boy feel good who asked if his atheist dad was in heaven, and he said, well, he's a good man, and God lets good people in heaven. No, Mr. Pope, I have to disagree with you. There's only one way to heaven. It's through Jesus Christ, his blood shed on Calvary. You must be born again. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and he died for everybody, and everybody can receive him and go to heaven. But we don't change what we believe for how other people think or feel. We change how we think and how we feel according to what God's Word says. It is the final authority in this world. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I don't care if every other Christian believes contrary. If God's Word says this is what you're to believe, then you and I need to believe God's Word and follow the teaching of Scripture. And in this chapter, Paul preaches, as I said, his first sermon. And he gives a history lesson. We're going to get into that next time we're together. It's absolutely, absolutely amazing. But aren't you thankful that what Paul shares, it's according to the history of the Jewish people, it's according to the writings of Moses and the, the writings of the prophets, which tells us this. You can count on the Word of God. It's not some fictional book that was written by man. It is the supernatural book. It's God's Word. I saw on the news, this, this really doesn't matter, but it's, it's kind of a point of a cultural reality of what's going on in our world. GQ, the editors of GQ recently gave a list of books you should never read. And they listed like 20 or 21 books you should never have, you never have to worry about reading. And the 12th book that they listed in their list of books you should never read, they included the Bible. Uh, a little bit too late, GQ. Uh, you know, like... Five billion people, five billion copies of the Bible have been sold. They said you shouldn't read the Bible because it's one of the worst things that man has ever produced. I beg to differ with you, and 6,000 years of human history begs to differ with you. It's the greatest book that's ever been written, that ever will be written. And when you base your life upon it, your life will never be the same again. I'd like every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we thank you for the lessons from the book of Acts, chapter 13 today. Thank you for the example of John Mark and that we want to be responsible men and women. We want to take responsibility for the, the, the decisions and the choices that we've made. And if we've made wrong choices, wrong decisions, then by your grace and by your help, we'll do our best to make them right concerning the people that have been affected. And Lord, we thank you that as Christ's followers, we're, we're going to be not just attenders, but members and even ministers. We're going to let our gifts be used for your glory. For the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So thank you, Lord. And thank you for the example of Paul and Jesus as they were in the synagogue on the Sabbath, that every weekend, Lord, we're going to do our part to be a part of a local congregation. We're going to worship and we're going to serve and give and pray. We're going we're to follow the teachings of Scripture, Lord. And as we do that, Lord, I thank you for how the Holy Spirit brings about change and transformation in our lives. And it's a process, I know, God. I know that many of us are not where we want to be, but we're not where we used to be. But we are headed to where we're supposed to be by your grace. And thank you that, Lord, you'll never give up on us. And so now with heads bowed and eyes closed, ask the Lord, what are you saying to me through this message today? What is ringing true in my heart? Lord, you're asking me to apply to my life beginning today. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed, 
If you're here today and you, you need to commit your life to Christ or you need to rededicate your life to Christ, you need to know that he loves you. He loves you dearly. He died for you. He wants you to be a part of his eternal kingdom. So if you've never been born again, you've never accepted him, well, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart knocking. You simply need to answer him. Ask Christ to come into your life. I know there are many of you here today that you need to rededicate your life to Christ. You've, been, you've gotten busy and you've gotten distracted and you haven't been serving the Lord like you used to. And you're what the Bible calls a backslidden Christian, a backslider, and you can slide back home. You're like the prodigal son that Jesus taught about in the Gospel of Luke. Maybe you're standing knee-deep in pigs, pig, a mess of, of pigs, and you come to your senses and say, I need to return to my father's house. And here's what you need to know. The father has been waiting for you. He's, he's missed you. Matter of fact, he's waiting with open arms, and as you begin to make your return back to the father's house today, he's going to run after you, and he's going he's to wrap his loving arms around you, and he's going to forgive you, and he's going to restore you. But the Bible says if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I want you to pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. I want you to say it with your own mouth and mean it from your own heart. Here we go. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit and give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life beginning today for the rest of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family?